Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 27th of February 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. <laughs> Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be jo joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border and uh, Mark Anderson reporting from the USA. Um, so uh, the weekend, or Saturday at least, was uh, a weekend of uh, demonstrations and protest uh, internationally. Uh, Stop the War Coalition held their event. Uh, thousands of people at that, of course, not really sure exactly how many were there, but uh, it was certainly wasn't as big as uh, 2003 in Hyde Park. But nonetheless, uh, glad to see everybody out for that including uh, at least one UK column supporter. So uh, well done uh, for that one. Uh, but uh, there was a counter protest as well. And who was leading it? It was Peter Tatchell. Uh, and in fact, the uh, Evening Standard decided that uh, they would focus on Peter Tatchell and his counter protest rather than focusing on the Stop the War Coalition protest itself. Um, so Peter Tatchell was doing that. The question is why? Well, of course, he uh, does not like Vladimir Putin's position on uh, gender-related issues. Um, and that seems to be his justification for calling for more war, David. Well, it's a very striking um, moment in history when we've got um, the gay rights movement advocating for um, mass killing in order to further their political objectives. Uh, indeed. Uh, meanwhile, over in Germany, uh, a bigger protest in Berlin uh, so uh, they were also out. Uh, Rebellion for Peace rally is what it was called. Uh, the police in Germany initially said there were 5,000 people at that. Then they said there were 13,000 people. But the German MP, uh, Sarah, well, I can't even pronounce her name, from uh, the Linke Party, uh, said it was more like uh, 50,000 people, Brian. So that was quite yeah. a... So I'm sure the truth is somewhere in between that. But nonetheless... Uh, that was quite a significant uh, turnout in Germany. Uh, what was interesting, according to reports that I was given, was uh, uh, every time uh, the, name, the names uh, Schultz or Baerbock were mentioned, uh, the crowd booed significantly. So, uh, you know, it was very, very clear how people are feeling over there. Um, but uh, the question is, if the numbers were better in Europe, why would that be? Well, Let's have a look at uh, the Telegraph here. They published this last week. Majority of public backs UK's current level of support for Ukraine, according to a poll that the Telegraph held. Uh, and so, for example, one question, how involved should Britain be in the war in Ukraine? Uh, they claim that 65% of Britons believe that we should be more involved in the war uh, in Ukraine uh, and 27% less involved. Uh, but unfortunately, this is based on a survey of 1,029 UK adults. So it's not exactly terribly widespread uh, polling. And the question is, what kind of adults were asked? Uh, should the West push Ukraine to negotiate a peace deal with Russia uh, at the cost of Ukrainian territory? 25% said yes, according to the Telegraph. 57% said no. Uh, and they went on to talk about uh, sending fighter jets uh, that's a bit more, a bit closer to that particular vote. Most, a lot of people, at least 22% of people don't know the answer to that. Uh, and then should uh, Britain provide tanks? Uh, the majority there, 58%, seeming to say that uh, we should. Uh, but in Europe, uh, a, a similar poll held in Europe, but uh, slightly broader based at least. Uh, do you rather agree or disagree with the following statement that Russia and Ukraine should be forced into peace talks in order to end the war, even in Latvia, Lithuania, and uh, Estonia, the 
majority of people believe that there should be talks going on. Uh, and those three countries, uh, uh, of course, are the most uh, anti-Russian within the uh, EU. So uh, that uh, perhaps explains a little bit why there's a bigger turnout in Germany than there is in the UK. Nonetheless, uh, I'll just remind everybody or let everybody know uh, on Wednesday this week at Buchanan Street Steps, 5.30 p.m., uh, in Glasgow, there's peace talks now, stop the war in Ukraine, no to the Russian invasion, no to NATO, no to nuclear war, Wednesday 1st of March. Hopefully everybody will attend that. Uh, and uh, so there we go. David, what are your thoughts? Well, it is very striking that the, the manipulation of public opinion in this country, which we've seen so successfully over COVID, still seems to be working. The press is on board and uh, people are responding. Um, I think the support for the war, though, is because it's a very, very strange sort of war. Uh, none of our people are dying. We're not seeing the people who are dying. Uh, we're not seeing anything. We're just seeing uh, Putin, supposedly Hitler, madman Putin, um, and the Ukrainians are going to win, the plucky Ukrainians are going to win, narratives from BBC. And that's really all the information most people have to go on. They're not seeing anything that is remotely realistic. They're not seeing anything that puts the, 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 the conflict in context. And uh, the BBC and the mainstream media are quite content that that's going to continue to be the case. Uh, yes. Now, if uh, Peter Tatchell's running the pro-war campaign in, in this country for reasons we mentioned, uh, we just thought we'd uh, mention this, uh, which is the State of Hate 2023, Rhetoric, Racism and Resentment from Hope Not Hate. Uh, and well, the UK column gets a mention in here. Uh, we're a long-standing and significant voice in the UK's conspiracy theorist alternative media, apparently, uh, producing video content, including live streams, as well as articles and offline meetings. Uh, but uh, they're doing a very, well, they're, they're doing their best, their level best, to try to associate uh, what we're doing with uh, right-wing extremism, uh, as we've seen so many uh, counter-mainstream narrative uh, producers being labelled that way. Uh, but uh, apparently we push cons far-right conspiracy theories, ideologies, sorry, not theories, conspiracy ideologies such as cultural Marxism, David. Yes, this was, this was a fascinating one. Um, th there are scholarly, scholarly books on the, uh, on the issue of cultural Marxism uh, going back to, well, the last uh, millennium, um, and these are based, some of these are based on uh, works in, in universities looking at these issues. And the thing about cultural Marxism, it was an established fact until it became tremendously embarrassing for the far left when people who were opposing what they were doing started to talk about it and using, uh, and, and were using uh, an explanation of what cultural Marxism is to push back against the agenda. And when knowing about cultural Marxism became um, unhelpful to the far left, then all of a sudden it went from being an established fact, available on Wikipedia and many other places, to being a conspiracy theory. It went down the memory hole, Mike. Um, as in 1984, the novel warning us about the uh, result of backing the far left, which is, of course, uh, a, a boot stomping on a human face forever. Um, they don't want to talk about cultural Marxism. There's a reason. They're trying to tell us it doesn't exist. There's a reason for that too. When we point out that it does, 
we are the conspiracy theorists? Uh, I don't think so. I think they have a reality problem. Yes, okay, well, let's just bring one of those books uh, on screen. Uh, Cultural Marxism in Post-War Britain by Dennis Dvorkin. Uh, are you recommending this book? Well, it's, 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 it's quite good. It's from 1997, um, and it, it does cover the from a, a perspective of, of 20 odd years ago, it covers the, the, the issues quite well. And it shows you just how well established these things were. The actual the actual origins of cultural Marxism itself go back much further, certainly to um, to uh, the 1960s, works of Herbert McCruz and others. Um, uh, but this this is a this is a, a I'm showing this one to illustrate the nature of the academic study of this subject that uh, Hate Not Hope now tell us it doesn't exist. We just imagined all of these works and these books uh, and these university papers. Yeah, okay. Well, I would say, David, so that's more manipulation of the public mind. You, you've covered Ukraine and said it's clear that the uh, media in Ukraine are making sure the pu public is fed nothing of the truth in order to uh, deceive them and shape their opinion. So nothing much has changed, but let's... Uh, Let's have a real look at the fighting in uh, Ukraine. And we have to kick off here with the BBC because uh, the BBC desperate to make it appear that uh, more or less it's just got into a little bit of a, um, a hole, uh, not a lot going on. Russia's uh, started out uh, trying to take over the whole of Ukraine, which of course the Russians never said they were trying to do. Uh, but now they're stuck and almost, well, it's, it's a bit of nothing. Um, so the BBC clearly deceiving the public in UK once again. The BBC is lying and they're deceiving the public by spin, but also by omission in the amount of information they put across. And let's put the key headline from uh, a variety of sources. The Ukrainian dead now estimated at somewhere between 275,000 and 375,000. Ukrainian cash casualties on the battlefield, truly horrific, but the BBC wants this war to continue. The British government wants this war to continue. And uh, the reality is so bad that we can't show uh, more images of that reality. But just think about those numbers for the moment. Well, this is the main issue on the um, on the battlefield, Bakhmut, the city which is strategically important because it's central to all the Ukrainian defences, uh, but the BBC and Western media in general would have us believe that this city is of no consequence. But despite that, the Ukrainians uh, continue to push troops in. They have withdrawn some key troops from Bakhmut as it gets encircled by the Russians. And the troops uh, that have been pushed up to the front line increasingly um, uh, conscripts with very little training. So uh, that's the harsh reality. Uh, but over the last few days, the Russians um, uh, encirclement effort to the northwest of the city has progressed quite quickly. And uh, it's clear the Russians are going for a major encirclement not necessarily just Bakhmut itself. But none of this is appearing, of course, in the BBC because it's within Bakhmut that the real tragedy is taking place. And I thought we would show you today some of the images which set out the real scale of destruction. So these are some general images of Bakhmut. And think about the scale of what you are seeing 
when the Ukrainians have put in so many thousands of troops that it's almost that each building has to be fought for. Russia is not going to take the casualties, so they're dealing with the problem by shelling from a distance, and hence we see this massive destruction across the front. This is a bird's eye view of Bakhmut, um, and uh, you can see the scale of the attacks going on, and in the suburbs, the uh, massive destruction of the building. Uh, what have we got going on here? This is fighting on a World War II scale, something else that the Western media doesn't want to talk about. So in this area, roughly 30 to 40,000 Ukrainian troops, not just in Bakhmut city itself, but in the area. Some of the battalions are losing or have lost 80% of their strength. And the life of a new Ukrainian recruit in this area is measured in in hours. Remember that the British Army is only capable of putting 20,000, maybe 25,000 men into battle. And if they did so, they would run out of artillery and other ammunition for this sort of war in a matter of days or a couple of weeks. And that's been fully admitted uh, by uh, UK politicians and the Ministry of Defence in UK. So this is the sort of thing going on. Um, destruction on a truly horrific scale and the Russians have unlimited uh, artillery ammunition to do this and they are going to shell all of the areas because they don't want to take casualties by moving up to fight house to house if they don't have to do it. Modern weapons coming onto the scene. I think what we're seeing here is the fire from a, ter a Russian Terminator this is a very high rate of fire. It's one of their new armoured vehicles on the battlefield and uh, horrific destruction uh, we can see in front of our eyes. This is a picture of Bakhmut as seen through the eyes of a Ukrainian soldier, uh, destroyed armoured uh, personnel carrier on the street. But you can see that this is fighting for every building. And uh, of course, the damage that he is looking around and watching uh, you can hear his breathing. He's clearly very stressed as he's moving through this. Uh, but this has resulted in these huge casualties. So um, we've also got similar heavy fighting uh, taking place in Ugladar to the southwest of Bakhmud. These are vast uh, areas. Uh, the drone footage here once again shows the result of the shelling. And uh, the utter destruction is very plain to see in the foreground. Uh, but also you're looking into a very flat horizon and it's those open fields that still contain Ukrainian trenches, which the Russians are clearing with artillery and air power. And if we stay in uh, Uglidar, uh, one area is the Dacha area, which if I remember correctly is southeast of the, the main urban area. And uh, here you can see the Dashas have been destroyed one at a time well, in fact, in large numbers due to the shelling. A tank has just exploded in the bottom of the screen uh, where the red arrow is, but this shows the sheer scale of the fighting. If we go on to Marienka, uh, Marienka uh, we've got some footage taken from a Russian tank, which I think should, uh, beg your pardon, let's come back. Will this not play? Yes, here we go. And uh, um, so this is to the west of Donetsk city. This is where the Russians are pushing the Ukrainians back from Donetsk itself. And again, we can see the uh, massive damage to infrastructure 
and of course this underlines the uh, the casualties but of course it's not only in the urban areas it also goes the fighting goes on in forest areas particularly up north of uh, Bakhmut and um, this is the sort of thing that's going on with the Russians using ther thermobaric weapons in order literally to burn the Ukrainians out of their trenches in the foreign in the forest areas uh, but this is part of the reality as well, that the Ukrainians are simply throwing away the weapon systems that the West has given us, uh, giving them. So this is uh, piles of anti-tank weapons. Um, now, this does how many in that pile? I've estimated 200 spent cartridges uh, from missile systems, but uh, there may be more depending on the actual depth of that pile. But if we put in some figures, if these are NLAW systems, each one's valued or was valued at 35,000 per unit, uh, that means in the pile there's seven million pounds worth of Western ammunition. If it's Javelin, that's 130,000, which means the pile's worth 26 million. Uh, but Ukraine is throwing these away because they're not attacking tanks with these weapons, they're using them in the street battles. And uh, what is Ukraine getting desperate for now? Not only uh, weapons, uh, but they are desperate for troops. And this is what is now happening on the streets of uh, Ukraine. Um, this is how their recruitment uh, soldiers are dealing with people that uh, don't want to get involved in the fighting. Some of the brutality of the video we can't show on screen, but you're certainly not going to see any clips like this on the BBC because, of course, it starts to reveal what's uh, really happening in Ukraine itself. David, I can see the expression on your face as you watch uh, the clip on screen. Um, I think we can end it there. We get an idea of what's going on. Uh, but uh, the reality of Ukraine is horrific. The fighting needs to stop. It could stop, I believe, literally overnight if the West and America uh, pulled the plug on their support for Zelensky and said that there had to be some talk. Uh, but uh, the reality of the scale of the death in Ukraine is unbelievable. David? Yes. Well, I mean, a couple of points. One, the, the idea that artillery gains ground and the infantry then holds it is, is, is certainly goes back to the First World War. Um, we're seeing it being uh, modified by new weapons, but it's very, it's very similar to, in many ways, a First World War battle. We're not seeing um, combined arms, rapid breakthrough, armoured thrusts, anything like this. That's probably a, a factor of, of the more advanced weaponry that is denying um, freedom of movement to armour, that is denying freedom of movement to aircraft on both sides. Um, we're seeing um, that a point must be reached where the Ukrainians simply can't go on. Um, this happened in the Winter War in 39-40 between Finland and, and the Soviet Union, where the Finns, despite a, an extraordinarily effective and gallant defence, eventually their, their general went to the politicians and said, we'll, we'll last another two weeks and then they're going to break through. So if you're going to negotiate, do it now because we've still got something, we've still got some chips to negotiate with. And one of the things I wonder is whether in a similar situation, and we may be near it, I, it's very difficult to judge, in a similar situation, 
the uh, Zelensky government would have the freedom to take the right decision, the right decision in the interests of their country, to negotiate and get peace. Um, I'm not sure that it would because it seems to be propelled by other interests, outside interests, uh, the interests that, that essentially pushed the, the war to the, to the point of starting in the first place um, by expanding NATO <clears throat> and looking to take um, uh, the Ukraine into NATO. So here we have a situation where we've got vast, vast killing. We've not got much of a pro-peace movement in the UK. We do have some in Europe. Um, it's difficult to judge what we have in Ukraine because if you're getting stripped naked and bound to a lamppost for not joining up, I can't imagine marching down the street and saying peace now. It's a particularly easy thing to do. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Well, two, two short uh, video clips here of the uh, UN Security Council just to frame what, what, the, uh, what, what the view of the West is. So this first clip, I, I just, it appalls me really because what Sky News is doing is sneering. Let's have a look at this clip and see the subject. The Security Council is called to order. In the Security Council chamber, Ukraine's foreign minister wanted to remember the cost of the past year, the cost of Russia's invasion. I kindly ask everyone to observe a minute of silence in memory of the victims of the aggression. But Russia's representative here interrupted the silence. He had another idea. All of those who perished, all lives are priceless. And that is why we're rising to honor the memory of them all. The Russian version of history is that Ukraine started all this. The minute silence resumed, he had successfully seized the moment. So, Mike, I find this despicable because you can't even have a minute's silence for the dead in Ukraine without Sky News putting over a political spin on it. You cannot even stand up and remember the dead on both sides. Uh, you can only remember the dead on one side. So I found that a truly offensive uh, clip from Sky News. But what's it really about that clip went on to tell us? Let's have a look at James Cleverly. Uh, speaking at the Security Council. And this anniversary was a chance to count the cost. Putin cannot, must not win in Ukraine. Because what's at stake on the battlefields is the international order itself. And that is at the heart of the United Nations. So that's the answer, isn't it? It's uh, they don't care about Ukraine. They don't care about the dead. The reality is to protect the so-called Western order, the rules-based international system, which as long as you do, as they say, uh, life is fine. And if you don't, it's not fine. David. Just very quickly, remember that Jeremy Vine of the BBC said, if you put on a Putin's uniform, you deserve to die. Um, this is the, the way that uh, the, 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 the dead on one side is being viewed. Uh, they're being dehumanised. It's very worrying. Yes. OK, well, um, a bit of scandal over the weekend. Uh, I haven't seen too much in the way of fact checkers uh, coming out to deal with this. Uh, but Polish media had this little piece of video uh, and it got caught up on social media and is doing the rounds. Now, if you uh, 
missed the significance of that. Let's just uh, bring up the, a still from it. Uh, and what we have in the background here seems to be, uh, well, what is that, David? Mini-Me or something? This is, seems to be Zelensky Mark II in the background. So some people talking about uh, was the buddy double uh, caught on camera by accident? Um, as I say, I haven't seen the fact checkers uh, doing very much with this yet, but I just thought it was an interesting uh, little data point for everybody to watch. Now, pa Brian. So, yes. Yeah, so I, I had to suggest to you when I saw this, Mike, that maybe this would be the individual that went to Bakhmut when there was talk that Zelensky had actually been right up to a very dangerous area of the front line. Did he go or did he send a double? Uh, I'm seeing this if it's correct, and this is not a falsified video. Uh, it seems to me quite, well it was on it? polish mainstream media yeah. so whether it's falsified i don't know but uh you know it's a bit ironic because of course zelensky has been banging on for quite a long time now about putin's body doubles and in fact he's even gone as far as to saying putin's already dead from cancer and that uh, he doesn't know who he would be negotiating with if he started talks with putin because as far as he's concerned putin is dead so you know it's it's all very uh interesting in a sense now uh, we, Brian showed the video a couple of seconds ago with uh, the Ukrainian uh, conscripts uh, being lifted on the street or attached to, to, to uh, poles on the side of the street. Uh, let's just have a look at this. Uh, this, of course, is uh, Ukrainians, uh, what do we call them? Uh, cadets. cadets. Yes, in inverted commas, in the UK, standing for a minute silence uh, on Friday for, uh, for Ukraine. But the problem is that according to social media posts, uh, some of these guys are running away as quickly as they possibly can. They're deserting. Um, and uh, so from the first recruitment uh, of Ukrainians, according to the one social media post I saw, uh, a fifth of them uh, have deserted. Uh, and uh, so apparently what happens when these guys come into the UK is that they have their passports taken away from them. Uh, they're given uh, ID cards instead. Uh, they're taken on the secure military bases for their training. They're not allowed to leave those bases. Uh, but some of them are leaving nonetheless. Um, now, this, as I say, unconfirmed reports on social media, but perhaps uh, this puts a little bit of context on it because here is uh, a reply, a response to a petition by Zelensky. It's in Ukrainian, so let's translate it. And it says uh, the, the uh, petition was entitled Veto the Law Number 8271 on Strengthening the Punishment of Military Personnel. Now, in order to get a response from Zelensky, uh, the uh, Ukrainian uh, petition site had to get 25,000 votes. Uh, 34,941 people signed that particular petition. Um, and so what this law is about is it is strengthening uh, the uh, punishment as for military personnel in the event that they desert, for example. So I just find the timing of this very interesting. Now, Brian, you've said that people are deserting in Ukraine itself. Well, uh, but also no question there is no question of that and also there's quite a lot of film footage which certainly appears to be genuine of of ukrainian troops rebelling mutinying due to the the military leadership or lack of uh, food and vittles and ammunition um, and also it's very clear from footage which we cannot show that ukrainian deserters are being shot in some instances but uh, the film footage is too distressing. So the, the legislation itself isn't, uh, isn't suggesting that that would be a punishment for desertion. Uh, that seems to be what's happening on the ground, though. Uh, but what they are saying is that disobedience would be punishable by five to eight years in prison, uh, that desertion would be 10 years, uh, threatening commanders, consuming alt alcohol, questioning orders, and any, lots of other violations 
also being dealt with more harshly than they were previously. And there was a bit of a backlash uh, from the population, which apparently did not uh, get a positive response from Zelensky. No, because he, he's got to keep the war going because he's now in the rat trap with the West. Uh, OK, David, let's move on to Israel. Yes, yeah, so an update on things. We've been talking off and on about Israel for some time and the general move towards uh, more polarised society, more violence um, and uh, the absence of any political initiative to uh, improve things. So here we've got uh, Haaretz uh, reporting Israeli settlers rampage through West Bank town. Uh, Palestinians say one killed, dozens wounded. Um, the, uh, the report goes on. Uh, the settler movement activist said, why should we stop? We are protecting the lives of Jews. Daniela Weiss, leading figure in the settler movement, uh, uh, commenting uh, on these events, said, it's a shame uh, that the army even arrived here. They should go and catch the attacker who murdered two Jewish uh, Israelis earlier on Sunday. Weiss added, the settlers have lots of guns, so there's no need for a military presence in the sector. Anyone who thinks that we have to use the army to deal with these attackers and not through, uh, not through strengthening the settlements, is mistaken. So extremely, um, which, what would you say, gun-ho um, uh, view from uh, the settler movement there, which is becoming increasingly well-armed and uh, extreme in its views. Um, uh, also in Haaretz, uh, settlers set fire to houses and, sheep, and a sheep pen in a Palestinian village brewing north of Hawara. Um, and uh, the sources added, uh, the sources said that th this had happened uh, in this in this village, and they added that the settlers set fire to a pen with dozens of sheep. IDF soldiers managed to rescue some of the livestock. So you're seeing the IDF as, believe it or not, a moderating influence, um, and they're not wanted by the the settlers. And the settlers want freedom to um, exact their own punishment, their own collective punishment on the Palestinian population. Uh, the Jerusalem Post um, is reporting the same issue. Settlers rampage in Hawara, torch homes and cars after a terror attack, uh, including shooting at the Israeli journalists reporting on the violence. Um, the uh, Jerusalem Post also covers the original um, terrorist attack. Uh, two Israelis were murdered on Sunday in a terrorist, a terrorist shooting in the town of Hawara in the Northern West Bank. The victims were brothers Hillel and Menachem, Hillel Menachem and Yigal Yaakov Yaniv. Uh, the search for the terrorists was ongoing at press time. The terrorists used a car to ram an Israeli vehicle. The, the, the Israeli vehicles have different number plates from the ones in the Palestinian Authority, so they're easily identified. That was driving through the town and then shot the two passengers at close range. The terrorists escaped from the scene. So that's the, the violence that's prompted retaliatory violence and so the the spiral continues meanwhile in the Knesset the much more uh, jingoistic and um, uh, aggressive and expansionist um, Knesset um, uh, we're now seeing um, laws being changed to again ramp up uh, the degree of tension in this case it's a death penalty Death penalty for terrorists' bill is approved by the cabinet. Now, it's not been approved by the Knesset yet, but it's been approved by the, by the cabinet. Um, um, and looking a little bit in the, into some of the detail reported in the Jerusalem Post on this bill, so according to the bill, um, 
someone who, quote, intentionally or out of indifference causes the death of an Israeli citizen when the act is carried out from a racist motive or hate to a certain public and, within, and with the purpose of harming the state of Israel and the rebirth of the Jewish people in its homeland, they, that person faces a death sentence and that sentence alone. So we'll need to look more into this uh, particular piece of legislation, but that seems ex very extreme. The background of, of using the death penalty uh, in cases where you've got a terrorist uh, insurrection going on has historically been to ramp up the level of violence to promote yet further violent backlashes and to make the whole situation worse. Yeah. Well, um, David, we're going to bring Mark Anderson in here. He's, he's talking about Chicago, where Chicago's going. But I had the opportunity to bring in Mark's segment after Israel because it seems to me that we are seeing in country after country things getting worse, more oppressive. Um, and uh, if we follow a lot of this agenda back, we come to the organisations that seem to be able to manipulate nation states. So Mark, um, tell us what you're seeing with uh, sh Chicago and where it's going. Uh, good day, guys. Uh, Chicago is going a very strange direction. Um, I'm very familiar with the city because I grew up on the other side of Lake Michigan and I've went there all my life covering Chicago Council on Global Affairs, Global Cities meetings, uh, pretty much knowing uh, what the government's about. The last mayor prior to the current mayor was Rahm Emanuel, uh, who was, of course, Chicago's first Jewish mayor. And keep in mind that Rahm wrote the book and the actual title of his most recent book, The Nation's City, Why Mayors Are Now Running the World. And I think I reported on that maybe two, three years ago on UK Column. And what we're seeing here is basically a socialist manifesto being uh, hardwired into the Windy City as it's known. Here's a little um, introduction here we'll show on the screen. We will Chicago. Now, you can kind of interpret that different right, ways, right? Now, you read the other part where it shows sort of the outline of the city's boundaries. Who will lead the future of Chicago? We will. But the title of the actual ongoing program here is We Will Chicago. Again, the, the semantics are a little strange. It says here on July 14, 2020, Mayor Lori E. Lightfoot, arguably Chicago's most radical mayor probably ever, announced Chicago's first ever citywide plan drafted by neighborhood residents and community leaders, yeah, to a degree. On February 16, 2023, just a few days ago, the Chicago Plan Commission formally adopted this plan as a 10-year framework to enhance citywide equity and resiliency. There we go again. The We Will Chicago plan includes approximately 40 goals and 150 objectives to improve Chicagoans' lives. Well, there are some things, nominally, anyway, especially individuals impacted by inequities in health, economic stability, neighborhood livability, and other systemic issues. And we'll move on to the next slide. Um, I went through it as much as I could. There was a lot to go through. I, I noticed this one because I've seen this before. Notice the circle part. Remove, this is something they've already done, they say. Removed all carve-outs from Chicago's welcoming city ordinance in 2021, eliminating, get this, eliminating local police collaboration with immigrations and customs enforcement and ensuring undocumented crime victims can interact with city departments 
including the Chicago Police Department, without fear of deportation. This ties into the current Mayor Lightfoot's ongoing aggressive efforts to hide illegal aliens from federal um, enforcement officials, thereby exacerbating the southern border crisis, thereby exacerbating the immigration problem in the United States. Uh, moving on to the next slide, just kind of picking some things out for, this is a preliminary report today. Another circled part, this is something Chicago says it's already done, strengthened efforts to engage the community and make residents safe from the dangers of hate crimes in 2022 by reinvigorating the CCHR Hate Crime Committee. So that's something that was and now is again to create the Hate Crimes Reboot, which brings together leaders representing government, community agencies, law enforcement to strategize in the fight against hate. So valiant, right? And then the other circle part launched the Senior Services Vaccination Navigator Program a couple years ago, providing direct outreach to over 13,000 older adults, informing and, and assisting them with home-based and nearby community vaccination opportunities. How uh, magnificent of them to do that, right? How magnanimous. And then uh, this is probably the last slide for today, I believe it is. Um, we'll see here. Um, another circle part, launched Project Chicago 77, another thing they say they've done, a citywide campaign to get Chicagoans in all 77 community areas vaccinated, kicked off Protect Chicago Plus, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it talks about uh, vaccinations and things like that. But you go through this whole plan and other than some rather agreeable things like let's have more local agri agriculture, more community gardens, let's shorten supply chains, have uh, more nutritious food more readily at hand. And, you know, that's all good on a case-by-case -case basis. But what we're seeing here is uh, a species of what the, the uh, global cities people call glocalism, grassroots globalism or glocalism. And so they're, they're on the hunt against hate crimes. They're, they're making sure that no one is left out in terms of getting vaccinated as much as they can. And so it's something of a socialist straitjacket being put on Chicago. Uh, you know, aside from whatever miscellaneous individual ideas might be neutral or might be somewhat marginally helpful. But uh, there's, there'll be more to report on this, but this is basically being pitched as Chicago's way to get its house in order. There's a lot of violent crime going on right now. And I think some of this is for damage control in terms of publicity, but they want to keep, keep things on track for their world-class global city designation. And uh, this is just something that is kind of continuing Rahm Emanuel, the former mayor's version, and, um, uh, you know, really um, um, also marginalizing what they call white people. That's probably the last thing I'll mention. There's so many things I read through, but um, all the um, assistance programs are for Hispanic and black communities and uh, illegal immigrants and minorities. Um, there's all this talk that we often see um, that basically excludes people of European extraction or what are euphemistically called white people, they evidently don't count in this master socialist plan to keep yeah. Chicago on its world-class city, uh, global city trajectory. So what I'm seeing is a mixed bag in some areas, but it's, it's pretty unsettling in most areas, but it's preliminary for now. There'll be much more down the road. Okay, yep. thanks, Mark. Let's uh, come back to the UK then. And uh, well, of course, people starting to notice that uh, uh, shelves are empty of certain types of produce in the supermarkets. Uh, this is Farmers Weekly. Supermarkets blame 
per foreign harvest for fruit and veg rationing. So the question is, who is to blame for the uh, fruit and veg rationing that's been going on in UK supermarkets uh, in the last couple of weeks and continues? Um, of course, when we have zero food security in this country and we're importing 60% of what we need, uh, then if uh, a foreign country has a bad harvest and they need the food for themselves, of course, we're not going to get it. Um, so, but that's not the full story. The, another part of the story is, of course, energy prices and the fact that the UK is producing some of this type of uh, produce, but it's all under glass and those greenhouses need to be heated uh, and energy heating costs have uh, increased. But the problem is that the supermarkets are not sharing any of the profits that they're making with the producers. Uh, and so the producers have Ooh. basically switched off their production capability. Uh, now, some people are saying that uh, that might come back online uh, March, uh, sorry, uh, April, May, June time um, as, uh, uh, you know, as we head into the spring and the summer. Uh, but nonetheless, we have a shortage in the meantime. Uh, then we've got Farmers week Weekly here. Uh, farmer frustration at low returns from supermarkets, just to back up uh, the comment that I've just made. Uh, this also has an impact, of course, on uh, producers of things like eggs and, and other uh, animal products. Uh, but look, what at the bottom, what the bottom line is, what is the problem here? Uh, and for me, the problem is mainly the government's uh, Green New Deal policy with respect to food production in this country. Now, if we go back uh, a couple of years, uh, we had uh, Michael Gove uh, warning uh, he claimed that uh, the UK is 30 to 40 years away from fundamental eradication in soil fertility. Um, and uh, well, that was a, a claim that he made. And as a result, uh, this justified the government's uh, Green New Deal or uh, replacement for the common agricultural policy, which was running along Green New Deal lines. Uh, and so they published this document uh, in March 2022. It was been updated in February 2023. Funding for farmers and land managers. Find out what funding is available for farmers, land managers, and foresters. And I want to highlight one particular part of this, and that's nutrient management. And what they're calling for here is that uh, farmers establish and maintain uh, legume fallow. So this is basically taking arable land out of food production and growing, uh, making it fallow, but growing a, a particular crop of legumes, uh, which uh, will help with carbon capture and storage and also reduce nitrogen uh, uh, release. Um, and they're paying farmers 593 pounds per hectare for doing this. So uh, this is AB15, the two year sown legume fallow. Uh, so two years, you've got to take your land out of production in order to qualify for this nearly 600 pounds a month, uh, 600 pounds a hectare uh, uh, bung from the government. Uh, so how much have you paid? 593 pounds per hectare. Uh, it's available for countryside stewardship, mid-tier and higher tier, on whole or part parcels in rotation, but only on arable land or temporary grassland. Uh, and it's, it's very good because it provides food for farmland wildlife, uh, as well as invertebrate chick food for farmland birds. Uh, around the sow and fallow between April and July is what it says. Uh, so the question is, uh, why are they doing this? Well, let's bring Michael Gove back on, because remember, 30 to 40 years away from fundamental eradication is what he claimed, but is that true, is the question. Um, Farmers Weekly, again, from uh, 2014, only 100 far harvests left in UK farm soils, scientists warn. Uh, then with Scientific American here, only 60 years of farming left if soil degradation continues. 
but the question is, is this true? And we've, we've shown this before, but it was quite some time ago, and it's just worth having a look uh, back, because this is Dr. Hannah Ritchie. Now, just to remind uh, everybody who she is, she's senior researcher and head of research at Our World in Data, focuses uh, on long-term development of food supply, agriculture, energy, and environment, and their compatibility with global development. Uh, hosts a BSc, holds a BSc in environmental geoscience, an MSc in carbon management, and a PhD in geosciences from the University of Edinburgh. So she, you know, she is uh, very much enthusiastic about uh, Green New Deal and so on. But this is what she had to say about that. If we just put that back on screen, please, Stephanie. Uh, the 60 harvest claim is quite clearly false, she said. Now, in the course of this article, they published a graph. Uh, which showed uh, the distribution of oil of soil lifespans across the world. Uh, and she said more than 90% of conventionally managed soils had a lifespan greater than 60 years. The median was 491 years for thinning soils. Half had a lifespan greater than 1,000 years and 18% exceeded 10,000 years. Uh, Michael Gove said the UK had only 30 to 40 years of harvest left because it was drenching them with chemicals. In fact, shifting to a no-tillage approach often requires more pesticides and fertilizers, not less. And she also said that people will often argue that while extreme headlines may be untruthful, they're worth it if they force people to take action. I don't buy it. It can be damaging in many ways. So a number of different uh, issues all sort of pushing in towards uh, the lack of food availability in the UK or at least the, the vulnerability of the UK to fa crop failures in other countries um, because we are relying on imports to feed ourselves. And in fact, just so as, the, as we understand the situation, if anybody watching this is vegan, it's not 60% of your food supply which is imported, it's more like 80 to 90% of your food which is imported. Um, so, you know, David, this demonstrates the irrationality of the entire policy but it's having a direct impact on the cost of food on people's plates uh, and, and, in fact, the ability of farmers to produce uh, food. And just to put a little bit, just one final point on this, that 500 and that nearly 600 pounds a hectare for the farmers to, to, to plant some seeds and then do nothing for two years, that would produce for the average farm double the profit of, say, for example, growing wheat where the cost of fertilizer is so high at the moment that uh, there's very little profit to be had in it. So uh, not sure what your thoughts are, David. Well, I think you've made the point extremely well. What we're seeing is perverse incentives. We're incentivizing farmers not to farm. But this is, this is a reflection of the inspiration behind this policy because it's the Green New Deal. In the original New Deal during the Great Depression, uh, the American government was buying up and destroying food in order to artificially um, support farm prices at the point where Americans were starving. Um, and this was called progressive politics. It hasn't changed much. Hmm. Indeed. Well, uh, I don't often encourage people to read The Guardian, but this uh, article caught my eye. And I find it fascinating. Uh, so here we are with a very interesting graphic that goes with it. Not quite sure of the significance of that, but it, the uh, main headline is Labour dreams of a slightly better Britain, uh, but a truly great country is within reach. I've lived there, Nazreen uh, Malik. Now, 
What is interesting about this article is if you read it, and I'm going to encourage our viewers and listeners to do that, it seems to me that we've got a lady, she's been in the UK for about 30 years now, from the early 1990s, I think she said in the article, and she's clearly struggling with what she sees. There's no doubt that she can see things are wrong in the country, but what she's picking up on is, well, uh, we've got Labour in the wings speaking, but can we really trust them? And are they really going to solve the problems? And why is it that when we speak out about problems, um, we get shut down? But the irony is, of course, The Guardian is one of the classic newspapers for shutting down anybody who's got an alternative opinion about what's going wrong in government. So if I just move on to another image they had, uh, which was Keir Starmer, uh, part, of the art, uh, part of the article underneath this image talking about him had got this sentence in it, but if we can just trust in Keir Starmer's vague but ambitious uh, pledges. So she's, she's, um, she's not promoting Labour in any sense. She's actually curious as to why Keir Starmer isn't taking on the government to solve all the problems. So where I'm getting to with this is that this quite experienced journalist, I think is really struggling to understand what's going on around her. She knows there's chaos and breakdown and madness, but she just can't seem to pin down why nobody's commenting on it. But she works for a newspaper that has consistently shut down people, warning something's not right. So this is her final paragraph in the article. Make of it what you will. Perhaps I have let what was simply a form formative personal experience inform my politics too much. Perhaps my good fortune was down to luck and privilege rather than the bountifulness I attribute it to. But I can't shake the feeling that if I'd arrived in the UK in more recent times, I would not be here writing these words you're reading, telling you that it's all right to have hope. That to have hope for a country, despite all instructions to submit to what we cannot change, is to love it. So by the end of the article, she doesn't know what to do about the problems, but simply sit there and hope that things get better. I'm not sure whether um, I've made my case on this one, but I think we're now starting to see journalists, I'm sure she's not alone, uh, puzzled at what they can clearly identify as a breakdown in UK, but they have no clue what to do about it because they have themselves stifled the free speech which would produce the debate to produce the turnaround. Mm. Okay, let's move on. If you like what the UK column does, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, your membership would be very much appreciated, much needed. Uh, you can pick something up at the UK column shop, but please do make sure you share anything that you find uh, on the various platforms or in fact on the UK column website. So uh, where does that take us? Uh, David, uh, a quick advertisement for the Fernethi Conference videos. Yes, Fernethi Conference uh, proceedings are now up on our website. Uh, you see here still with uh, two of the brave Fernethi ladies uh, who were speaking at that event. Uh, the next slide shows the text we've got going with it. I'll just quote a couple of pieces. Uh, ignored and shunned by those in authority, those whose duty it is to address what happened, the Fernethi ladies came together in a conference to share and discuss what they endured, who was responsible, and what needs to be done to address the harm caused to them in their innocent youth. 
And I point out that Ferretti House is one of the biggest scandals in the UK since its abusive regime was in place from the day it opened, that's 1961, and continued, to, continued for 30 years. Thousands of girls attended every year, and the total number of lives scarred by the experience is unknown. The toll could amount to tens of thousands of little Glaswegian girls. They deserve to be heard. Um, also, uh, up on the website, uh, a long but really high-quality piece by Terry Boardman, Ukrainian policy in the Donbass, is it fair to call it genocide? This is a writing ass assignment that, that we suggested to see if this, this charge could be um, substantiated. Um, I, what, I, what I particularly like about this piece is it's factual, it's fair, it's not partisan. I'd actually, to read something about the Ukraine that's not simply pushing one partisan view is really quite refreshing. Uh, it's a long read, but it's an extremely good one. I encourage people to look that out. And finally, on adverts, we've got um, a, a video interview up with uh, Jennifer Sharp, who's a filmmaker, produced a film, Anecdotals. Um, this is about all the people who are dismissed. It's merely anecdotes as they, as they report their, uh, the harm they have suffered at the uh, hands of the biotech industry, in, at the hands of uh, the vaccination mandates and pressure and uh, Pfizer Biotech, etc., um, with their COVID-19 vaccinations. Um, these people have been silenced and they are the anecdotals. An excellent film and a very good uh, and, and informative interview. I encourage people to, uh, to seek that one out on our website as well. Okay, and just a final reminder then, because uh, on Wednesday is uh, Wednesday is the closing date for the uh, UK government's consultation on digital ID. Uh, if you haven't, uh, the URL for that is on screen at the moment. If you haven't uh, submitted your evidence for that yet, please do. Uh, Surveys.domains.gov.uk/s/coz-d81, or that well could be C0Z. I'm not quite sure, but anyway, you can. You'll, it'll be in the show notes after the program. Uh, please uh, get your effort in before Wednesday. It only takes about 10, 15 minutes to fill the thing in, so um, it shouldn't be a problem. Uh, David, let's move on to uh, Scotland. Yes, we come to Scottish politics, and the reason I'm following this is it is the whole of Western politics in a microcosm, and it's really bringing out some fascinating themes. So it's worth digging in a little more carefully uh, to the um, the competition to be uh, next First Minister of Scotland, next head of the Scottish National Party. Um, we start here with the Times. Uh, Jim Gallagher's writing, Sturgeon's res resignation gives Scotland a chance to end the political poison. And political poison is a fair assessment of what we've been going through for the past seven years. He continues, with the First Minister gone, much of what the SNP voters want can be delivered without a separate state. That one we might talk, we might discuss in extra time. Uh, and he, he points out the trio of Salmon, Sturgeon and Swinney dominated Scottish politics since 2007. A quarter of a century on, uh, that project has ground to halt because of intransigence, not as Sturgeon would have it of Westminster, but of the voters. So he then talks about uh, the resignation speech, a somewhat self-serving resignation speech from Nicola Sturgeon, but then concludes that nevertheless two admissions stand out. First, acknowledging that our de facto referendum plan was dead in the water, which is an important point, and second, calling for the depolarisation of Scottish politics. This will have raised a whole laugh for many because essentially 
polarisation of Scottish politics has been of stock and trade this last seven years. And it concludes last week um, was the petering out of the nationalist project. Sturgeon's, Sturgeon's dream is dying and a new one is coming to birth, but it may not be her party that brings it to the world. So we might call in that also in extra time. Now, uh, the Telegraph, Tom Harris in the Telegraph, is also looking at the broad sweep of things here. And he says this leadership election could finish the SNP for good. And he points out that the contest is in danger of becoming a microcosm of the culture wars. Well, it's not in danger. It absolutely is the mi a microcosm of the culture wars. That's precisely what we're looking at here. So we'll look briefly at each of the three um, contenders. First, we've got Ash Reagan. Now, here's a, an article from back in 2016 in The Herald uh, when she was uh, looking to get elected. Now, she's a left-wing firebrand. She was a lobbyist for socialist uh, group Common, Common Wheel, a think tank, the product of which is closely tight economic error, in my opinion. Um, and their motto is all of us first. And if you're thinking, wait a minute, all of us first is the same functionally as all of us last, then you're starting to understand a little bit about socialism. Anyway, she was uh, criticised for sending her children to a fee-paying school. And she was defending that, uh, but her children come first. And uh, just before we go, a small moment of humour for this. Peter McCall, the Scottish Green candidate in the panel, said, I wouldn't ever send children, if I had any, to a private school. So I thought that says all you need to know about the Green Party right there. So Ash Reagan has been pushing... Um, She's, the, she's, she's pushing herself as a unifying candidate. Her movement has been divided for too long, etc. Um, so that's, that's her line. More on that in just a moment. Um, but her main line is, her main push, her main appeal to the grassroots of the SNP who desperately want independence, is she's going to declare independence without a referendum. Because us pesky Scots, we didn't vote the right way. Um, and we're not going to be given a chance to get it wrong a second time. So she's pledged to fight every future Westminster and Holyrood election on independence and claim a mandate for splitting up the union if nationalist parties win the most seats and votes. Asked um, what she would do if the Prime Minister refuses to enter talks, she said it would be nothing to do with the UK government and that she would declare independence anyway. This, I would point out, is insane that she, to try and take Scotland independent against the wishes of the Scottish people is a, a recipe of for absolute turmoil, disaster, chaos, and failure. But never mind. Just because she's uh, not got a clue about economics or it would appear politics doesn't mean she can't recognise a conflict of interest. However, she is uh, she's raised the problem that Sturgeon's husband, Sturgeon's openly supporting Hamza Yusuf, Sturgeon's husband has a conflict of interest over the vote. Uh, Ash Reagan, obviously opposed Sturgeon on gender recognition and other things, resigned from the cabinet, so is perhaps not the favourite person in uh, Peter Morrill's life at the moment. Um, partly because she said she'll abandon any defence of the gender reform bill. So that's where we're at. We have a couple of bits of video. Uh, the first one shows her explaining how she's going to take Scotland independent through um, UDI. No, it's not, it's not that actually at all. So it's um, the VEM. So this is the voter empowerment mechanism. So what we're saying is that at any um, election, so that's a Westminster election or a Holyrood election, 
we're going to have in our manifesto is line one that if people vote for us that that will be their voting for Scotland to become an independent country. Now we can be joined in that by other pro-independence parties so it can be us and other independence parties and if we get 50% plus one of the votes cast in that election then we will know that that is a strong instruction from the electorate of Scotland that we will begin negotiations with the UK to exit. So not, it's not an instruction to then have a referendum, it's an no. instruction for independence? Absolutely. So that will be accompanied, obviously, by international recognition for this position of Scotland um, seeking to have self-determination recognised. And it's an instruction from the Scottish people to negotiate for exit. But how will that be the only thing in your manifesto then? Because you know people vote for a variety of reasons in elections. They don't just vote on one issue. And the other parties would say that's just not possible, that you can, it's not credible to say that that's what people are voting for. So that will be line one of our manifesto. I mean, we're the Scottish National Party. People vote for us because they want Scotland to be an independent country. Um, but of course, that won't be the only thing in our manifesto, but it certainly is our priority. Are you not concerned that um, you will lose votes by doing that? Because obviously Nicola Sturgeon has been very successful at winning elections and many times she said this is not a vote about independence, this is a vote about good governance and therefore has won people and also probably has a personal vote as well and has won voters yeah. to her on those reasons. Um, are, are you not concerned that this is a, an election losing strategy? No, I don't believe it will be. We're putting power back to the Scottish people. They will decide when they are ready um, for Scotland to become an independent country. Now, I would just point out, we will decide when we're ready, not if we're ready. Right? Now, this, is, this, this says there is no choice. It's inevitable. It's a flow of history. This is cultural Marxism. It's also... A, a means of um, demoralising your opposition. It's a policy of demoralisation. The people who want to remain part of the United Kingdom have got to be demoralised so they don't resist. This is what we're dealing with. Now, uh, we have one more clip of a, this really should be in the thick of it. This is comedy gold. It actually, it comes across as, as, a, as a comedy sketch. Just, just enjoy. So you're going to be the candidate that unifies the party, are you? I am. Well, I mean, some of your advisers have interesting views. Don't you think about Nicola Sturgeon accusing her of stitching up Alex Salmond and then covering it up? Do so you? Who, who are you talking about Kirk, as being some of my advisers? Kirk Torrance, is he advising you? Kirk Torrance is on my team, that's right. I believe in hiring the absolute best. So do you think, so that, Kirk Nicola, has do you think that Nicola Sturgeon stitched up Alex Salmond as well then, as he does? Kirk was advising the SNP, I believe, between 2010 and 2016. He was responsible for some of our successes, electoral successes, during that period. So um, when I, I called... I can, I can show yeah. you the, the, the tweet Thank he wrote. He wrote, um, Nicola Sturgeon, uh, Nicola is up to her dark eyes in the Genesis implementation and cover-up of the stitch-up. Did you know about those remarks when you hired him? Wasn't that lovely? Before we go on to Hamza, any comments on Ash, gentlemen? Well, I, I have one, David. I, I was fascinated, I am fascinated by an accent which um, appears to be, well... Not could, Scottish. Could you tell us more before I declare what I pick up? Well, actually, that's an, that's an interesting point, Brian. You see, she was, she was born in Glasgow in what we call in Glasgow a mixed marriage, right? So her, her, her mum was Protestant and her dad was Catholic. So that 
that that was an, an interesting start. But she then lived in, I think, Bigger in Scotland and then Cumbria. And then I think her formative years were spent down with you in Devon. Well, I, I just picked up, actually, I think the base accent is English and she's had to do a bit of work to try and get the Scottish accent back, enable her to do the job because she was struggling to appear Scottish there, but maybe I got it wrong. Other, uh, I don't think you did. Otherwise, the UK column audience, or at least some of them, have suggested that she was well scrubbed up and well turned out. So that was very good, apart from the Russian T-shirt. Definitely a blue and white striped T-shirt she had on. Well, the, I, I'm not saying she's not an improvement on Nicola Sturgeon, don't get me wrong. Uh, from that, we go to something that is well, maybe not so much an improvement on Nicola Sturgeon. Hamza, Hamza Yusuf. So the Telegraph here reports, Hamza suggests SNP rival Kate Forbes thinks um, gay marriage is inferior. Um, and he says that, that uh, the Scots leader should share the val share their values of the nation. Um, in a barbed comment on his opponent's beliefs, Mr Yusuf said he wanted gay Scots to look at me and have faith that I will be someone who would not think their marriage is somehow inferior to mine. Okay, so we're right. We're clear. We're, we're positive about gay marriage. And it transpires that's not quite true either because Scottish Daily Express reported that um, SNP leadership front runner Hamza Yusuf arranged a meeting at the same time as the vote on gay marriage in Holyrood so he wouldn't have to attend. He denied it, um, but Alex Neil, who supplied the information, former cabinet minister, um, he confirmed that uh, Hamza had come to them, and it was um, Alex Salmond in those days, and asked to be excused from the vote because of the amount of pressure he was getting from the mosque. And uh, he, he, he booked a meeting, so he, he had backup. If he didn't get permission to, to excuse himself, which he didn't, uh, he uh, went to the meeting instead and didn't attend the vote. Um, he denied that again, but Mr. Mr. Neil was unrepentant. He tweeted, it's not true. Humza deliberately skipped this vote. Uh, he can deny it all he wants, but he's not being honest about this. And he knows it. And uh, Alex Neil has since come up and said he's got lots of witnesses to all of this and can prove every word that he says. Now, quick moment of comedy here. Um, the Times reports, uh, opposition scared of Humza Yusuf, claims Nicola Sturgeon. Um, yes. The, the we're scared of Hamza Yusuf because of his fascist tendencies and his very very extreme political positions on almost everything. He's very much in the woke authoritarian left wing mold. Uh, but the opposition are not scared of him. The opposition want Hamza in, in in charge of the SNP because they know he'll wreck it. Um, the National, the National chose that photograph. I'm not sure if the National entirely behind him. Um, the National says, Hamza Yusuf says only he can keep the SNP in majority government. This bit's true. Um, Hamza said he's the only candidate running in Scotland's next, for, for Scotland's next First Minister who can ensure that the SNP's power-sharing deal with the very left-wing, very radical Greens continues, um, warning his rivals would take the party back to minority government. That, I think, is accurate. Now, we've got one or two other things uh, which may be accurate in a video of Hamza, which we can see now.
What I'm yep. saying is it has to be a sustained majority, and we don't yeah. have that. I'd be the first to admit that we'll have a poll that will come out one day putting us at 53%, and you know, even hours yep. later at 45%. I mean, there, there is just not that. Uh, we have to have a sustained, settled will for in, uh, in support for independence. Uh, what I would say it's not there yet. How that's, that's my point is that it's not instant. But that's why we want it now, and it's not going to happen. Of, co now, of course, it? I would want independence yesterday. Yeah, given, but it's given, not. So given it's a long the damage, damage that Tory austerity has caused to the people of Scotland. It's not an instant process. I'm not disagreeing with you. It would be anybody that comes to this campaign and has a ruse cooked up in the oven that suggests that we can get independence tomorrow. I'm afraid is not being honest with the party membership or indeed the public because such a route does not exist. Well, the route does exist. It's the Section 30 order, it's the gold standard in 2014 that the UK government, of course, are okay. denying democracy by not uh, giving us that order. So there you see the complete incoherence is Hamza Youssef. So there is no settled will in Scotland, his words, for independence. But despite this, the UK government are denying democracy by not giving us another referendum on independence. Oh, and by the way, the little bit about it, the problem with Tory austerity, you don't break up countries because of temporary party political ascendancy and the fact that you don't like the, part, the, the, the policies. That's a lie also. So that's Humza. Now, before we go on to Kate Forbes, any comments on Humza, gentlemen? No. I don't think we need to say any more about Humza because everybody's clear on what he is. Okay, okay, right. Humza doesn't get any comments. Now, Quickly going a few things on Kate Forbes. Uh, here we've got Brendan O'Neill in The Spectator uh, saying she's not homophobic for opposing same-sex marriage. Quite critical point here. He says, for, for me, the big takeaway is just how disorientated so-called progressive politics has become. We've now reached a situation where if you discard biological science, observable reality, and a truth humankind has known since the very beginning, namely that there are men and women and that they are different, you'll be praised to the hilt. But if you express a view that was completely mainstream for millennia, which is in fact the organising principle of human society, namely that marriage is something entered into by a man and a woman, you'll be shamed, damned and all but hounded out of respectable society. This is not normal. A good summary of what the issues are. Um, the Free Church of Scotland has been forced to issue a press statement. Um, they say the issues raised by Kate Forbes' intention to run as SNP leader have displayed a level of intolerance that we believe is uncharacteristic of the wider ordinary Scottish population and indeed does not represent authentic Scottish identity, which is historically grounded on hard work, common sense, respect, truthfulness and the family. It is lamentable that Kate's honest adherence to simple traditional values would, for some, disqualify her from contributing to the public good of Scotland. I thought that was quite well worded as well. And it's not just the wee free church that's supporting her. No, we've got the position statement by the Scottish Association of Mosques. They say, we believe marriage is a sacred institution and that a marriage is between a man and a woman. We believe in modesty and sexual relations within the boundaries of marriage. We believe that gender is binary and irrevocably linked to sex and that life is our greatest gift and is to be protected. These are the beliefs and we hold fast to them. So that sounds like very close to endorsing Kate Forbes. Um, the Telegraph reports, Protestants are now hounded out of politics. Um, 
And the, 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 they're wondering why she's actually put herself through this. They, they ask a question. So why did Kate Forbes do it? After years in Parliament, she will have been aware of the reaction to an MSP who declared their opposition to gay marriage, let alone premarital sex. Yet she did so anyway, immediately, almost proudly. He says, I'm more inclined to go with another theory. She decided to answer modestly but truthfully and to expose the bigotry that religious politicians now face. And that any overreaction might, just might, provoke some soul-searching within her party. Maybe. Um, all of this is going down, interestingly, with the voters. The actual voters, well, Kate Forbes is the clear favourite. The voters would want Kate. Um... She also recognises, and this is remarkable, for the SNP, this is remarkable. She also recognises that, that Scots are not ready for another independence referendum um, and that uh, will not be ready until a stronger economic case is made to break up the UK. It's about the economy, stupid. She's the only SNP person I know who actually understands that. Now, we don't have a video of Kate, but we do have a video of Kemi Badenoch being asked about the controversy. And I, I rather like the pieces that she leaves the journalist in at the end of this little clip. We should be able to allow those people who do have religious views. I'm not, I'm not a particularly religious person. I, I'm not religious at all. But I understand it because you know, I didn't grow up in this country. I grew up in a very religious country. So I understand what it means to people and, and how it can impact the way that they live their lives. And to stop people from saying what they really feel uh, I think is, is overly draconian. Uh, and I, um, I actually admire her for not being dishonest. It'd be very easy for her to tell lies just so that she could win that election. And she's not doing that. And I think that that's something that people need to take into account. I do think that those people who are withdrawing support from her, well, I would ask, why did you support her in the first place? Because I don't think that what she's saying is new. And, and it, I think it shows a level of unseriousness of many of the people who engage in political uh, activity and commentary where they're not, they don't take things seriously in terms of why am I supporting this person? And they, they will support someone because of their gender or their race rather than because the person's views actually chime with theirs. And we need to think about what people actually believe and the political principles that they're operating from rather than anything superficial. And that's why um, the last 24 hours have panned out the way that they have. Equally, there will be lots of people in this country who would like to hear the Minister for Equalities condemn the sorts of views that Kate Forbes has put forward today. Would you do that? Um, no. I will say that I support, I personally support same-sex marriage. I think it's disappointing if people don't. I think always it's disappointing when people don't agree with me. But I would not want people to condemn me for having personal views. Disagree with the views, debate the views. But if you are asking me to condemn someone for their religious views, then you do not understand what the Minister of Equality's role is. I am the guardian of the Equality Act. Freedom of religion is one of the protected characteristics. To ask me to criticize someone for their religious beliefs when I'm supposed to be safeguarding it shows that those people don't understand equality. What they want is to use the Equality Act as a sword to fight their own personal battles rather than as a shield to prevent others from discrimination. So no, I So there we go. A government minister who actually has read the act and is on top of her brief. What yeah. do you think of that? Well, uh, and she's prepared to, to speak out on it as, as she compliments 
uh, the other lady, she herself is prepared to speak out on it. So this is this is very interesting. Um, she's got some clear direction. Contrast that with the Guardian article that we chatted about a few, you know, a few minutes ago. Well, let's bring another Guardian article very quickly on screen, just to illustrate this, because this isn't about Scotland, but this, of course, uh, this furore over trans women uh, moved to men's pr prisons, uh, trans women found guilty of rape, moved to men's prisons. Well, the British government has now made a statement with respect to what's going to happen in England and Wales. And what they're saying is that transgender women with male genitalia will no longer be able to be held in mainstream women's prisons under new measures coming into force today. The Deputy Prime Minister has also announced measures will go one step further than previously set out by extending the rules to cover transgender women who've been convicted of violent offences. So uh, the, the new category is transgender women with male genitalia. Uh, so this is what uh, Dominic Rabb, the well, he's not sorry. That's miss. That's an old slide that I repurposed. So he's no longer foreign secretary. Of course, he is. Of course, deputy prime minister. He said safety has to come first in our prisons, and this new policy sets out a clear common sense approach to the housing of transgender pres uh, prisoners. Uh, with these sensible new measures in place, tran transgender offenders who have committed sexual or violent crimes or retain male genitalia will not serve their sentence in a women's prison unless explicitly approved at the highest level. They've given themselves a caveat, David. They've given themselves an opt-out. Uh, it requires an, a, the express approval of ministers if they want to, but, the, but it's not a blanket, no, you're not going into a women's prison. It's if we feel like sending you to a women's prison, we will. It, it's incredible. It is, it is. Um, they are obviously just anticipating some sort of political pushback at some point and giving themselves wiggle room. But nonetheless, I mean, a transgender woman with male genitalia is now going to be held in the male prison estate, not the female prison estate. That that means it's a man, right? You would think so. That would be the common sense uh, assumption. Now, now, Hamza, incidentally, has has been the foremost supporter of a trans woman as a woman uh, line and trans rights are human rights. And he's done all of this. He's now backing off himself and he's saying he doesn't believe that the woman, the trans woman who you illustrated that article with a photograph of is in fact a woman. He thinks that it's a man who is, um, as he's trying to say in a Kusi Glaswegian way, at it. Um, he's just someone, a man who's trying to pull the wool over the eyes of the authorities. Interestingly enough, if Humza's own hate crime bill which is on the statute books, but has never been implemented, were actually implemented, what Hamza said would in fact be a hate crime under that bill. Yes, indeed. Right, uh, let's move back to Mark then and uh, the World Health Organization, Mark. Yeah, this is really vital and timely and pivotal stuff, guys. Uh, as of today, the first quick note, the inter intergovernmental negotiating body is starting to work on this, the zero draft of the World Pandemic Treaty. So that started today. Now this past week, February 20 through 24, the working group for the international health regulations has been meeting. And much of that is on the World Health Organization's website right now. How long that video footage will be posted, we don't know. But this stuff is happening as we speak. And of course, they're very, con very concerned with the pandemic prevention, preparedness and response, the three Ps there, plus the R, PPPR, and 
what's going to feed this, of course, is another pandemic. And, you know, why would you need a treaty if pandemics were going to be a relatively rare thing? But that the drumbeats for another pandemic are getting louder. And here's another slide coming up. This is Dr. Shayan Sharif, Associate Dean of the Ontario Canada Veterinary College. He appeared recently on the Canadian news show, Your Morning, to warn that bird flu potentially could be more deadly than COVID-19 amid the possibility of H5N1, uh, the bird flu pandemic. Reportedly, there was a bird mammal crossover of the virus at a Spanish mink farm, among other alleged incidents. Note that, more deadly than COVID-19. And uh, we'll go through these slides. Uh, there's several of them, but a lot of these we can go through quite quickly. This is another posting that was in that news stream, H5N1 avian influenza A, March 2022, a year ago. 56% mortality in humans, they're saying. Uh, there, then there's a rhetorical question, could an H5N1 pandemic be worse than COVID-19? Question mark. Again, you've got to have an impetus for a world pandemic treaty, and the timing of this is, let's just say, curious. Moving on to the next slide. Um, everybody's favorite magazine, The Atlantic, not. This is a very recent article, February 17, and this ties into the uh, One Health thing I've been covering for UK Column, and I have that article posted on the website. Get this headline, Bird Flu Leaves the World with an Existential Choice. Oh, such weight, such gravity, and the subhead to prepare for future outbreaks will have to decide which is the greater danger, nature or ourselves. Now that, that is quite ominous sounding. And here's just a little bit from that uh, Atlantic article. After, let's go moving on to the next slide. Here we are. After three bleak years, the coronavirus pandemic is finally drawing to a close, but pandemics as a general threat, excuse me, very much are not drawing to a close. At the moment, the most pressing concern is H5N1, better known as bird flu. Public health experts, this is from the Atlantic article, have worried for decades about the virus's potential to spark a pandemic, and the current strain has been devastating global bird populations, not to mention spilling over into the mammalian world for more than a year. But these worries became even more urgent in mid-October when the outbreak of the virus on a Spanish mink farm seemed to show that the mink were not only contracting the virus, but transmitting it. See, so this is heading toward the human population. This is a posting I found, of course, online. The U.S. government is developing a H5N1 and a H7N9 bird flu vaccines. Get that. They're developing bird flu vaccines in case they are needed. The U.S. federal government maintains a stockpile of vaccines, including against H5N1, et cetera, bird flu viruses. So a lot of things are in the works in parallel with the uh, World Pandemic Treaty. And we're just kind of breezing through here. This is the, the working group on the amendments to the IHR. The, the IHR amendments are kind of the brick and mortar of the World Pandemic Treaty. And uh, that's just a posting to kind of illustrate that. Moving on to the next slide, uh, we have the timeline 22 uh, this year through, uh, well, last year, 2022 through 2024. So they're basically saying it's a little more than a year to go before they having the before they plan on having the treaty finalized. Uh, James Roguski, a noted uh, Los Angeles researcher um, and activist regarding the WHO, he noted that there's been rumors floating online that they're trying to wind up the treaty 
just this spring or something like that. And he believes that's a, a uh, false uh, false report uh, where uh, people who are investigating this, like myself, would take the bait. And then we, we would report uh, erroneously that they're going to wind up the treaty really quickly and do it right under our noses. He doesn't buy that. He believes that the timeline we're seeing here is correct and that that's an urban legend, that they're going to wind up the treaty right away. But anyway, there's some noted things on here. Um, we have, uh, yeah, th this is a good slide here. In September of this year, the Regional Committee for the Americas is supposed to be doing their thing. And then in October of this year, the Regional Committee for Europe is going to uh, enact their actions regarding the IHR and World Pandemic Treaty. And then May 2024, you'll see at the bottom of this slide with white letters on black, at the 77th World Health Assembly, that's when they plan on finalizing the treaty. And of course, the inter intergovernmental negotiating body is sort of a subset of the World Health Assembly representing 194 member nation states of the WHO. Here, here it's just a clarifying point on the next slide. Update on the timeline uh, for the working group on amendments to the a IHR, International Health Regulations, and the working group's coordination with the intergovernmental negotiating body to draft and negotiate a WHO convention agreement or other international instrument for pandemic prevention preparedness response. You'll notice they say convention, agreement, other international instrument. They tend to shy away from the word treaty, which itself, in my opinion, is a little bit curious. But moving on, um, not taking too long on any one item, uh, proposed modalities of engagement for relevant stakeholders. What's interesting here is the relevant stakeholders all tend to be, by and large, uh, United Nations or United Nations groups. Uh, you have here um, on this slide, in accordance with its method of work, the Working Group on Amendments to the International Health Regulations may, to the extent it so decides and in accordance with the relevant rules of procedure, et cetera, seek the participation of the following entities in its work, representatives of the organizations of the UN system and other intergovernmental organizations with which the WHO has established effective relations, observers, ill-defined, just one word, observers, representatives of non-state actors in official relations with the WHO, uh, et cetera. So basically the Stakeholders, according to the WHO, are largely the UN and UN-related groups. Uh, in this slide that's coming up, we show a listing. Uh, some, of the, some of these are the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization, and other UN agencies as being chief stakeholders for the working group on the health regulations. So the stakeholders aren't exactly the people, is what I'm pointing out here. Uh, to the extent it re refers to the people at all, it's a very vague reference. And here we have other stakeholders, as decided by the working group, invited to provide inputs to the working group, et cetera. Note this, other United Nations organizations, UN system organizations, other intergovernmental organizations and arrangements, the Asian Development Bank, the African Development Bank, the Council of Europe. United Nations Entity for Gender Equality and the Empowerment of Women. These are the stakeholders uh, that are behind the IHR regs and ultimately the treaty. Now, here's some of our Armenia's input in the next slide in the stream here. It's interesting here. This is from the country of Armenia. 
surveillance and response, create electronic digital centralized system for a comprehensive data collection on case, excuse me, on case and its contracts. I think it means on cases and its contacts, excuse me. Let me, let me do that one again. Create electronic digital centralized system for a comprehensive data collection on cases and its contacts, vaccination status, as well as using a One Health approach to reduce the risk of developing zoonotic diseases. Again, that One Health concept is brought up even by Armenia. And of course, as I mentioned, Armenia, or excuse me, the One Health concept is where they uh, take a worldview where mankind is, is put on the level of animals and the overall ecosystem and is afforded no more importance than the uh, other, other life forms on Earth. And this is Bangladesh's input on the next slide. Again, kind of pushing toward how individual nation states are going to be marginalized in their autonomy. It says here, COVID-19 pandemic has manifested that the fate of the global community is intertwined as the health of the people of individual countries cannot be secured in an isolated manner, et cetera, et cetera. Um, chipping away at the idea of national economy. Um, uh, moving on from there, uh, we have uh, the table of contents. And this just shows who's involved so far uh, with the IHR amendments. It does not list the UK at this point. Uh, Armenia, Bangladesh, Brazil, Czech Republic, Eswatini, boy, I hope I'm not butchering that, India, Indonesia, Malaysia, Namibia, New Zealand, Republic of Korea, the Russian Federation, curious, Switzerland, United States of America, and Uruguay. Uh, these are the ones that are mainly involved in the IHR amendments right now. Uh, uh, moving on from there, Mark, uh, we Mark, have um, Mark. I wonder what uh, but we... maybe maybe want to, yeah maybe give me some input at this point. There well, you go, uh, Mark. Thank you very much for that. This this is this is a very important topic, and and I, I think you've hit the nail on the head that what we are seeing are these well they are globalist plans. On one hand, they're talking about the sovereignty of the nation state. On the other hand, you're going to do as these people say as they bring this agenda in. I think to do this justice, could we invite you to um, uh, follow on from this initial report in, in, a, um, in another UK column news? It's just we are really up on the stops for time. But I want to emphasise that I'm absolutely aware how important this is because we are seeing this as as very well-defined globalist control over each and every nation state. L let me just mention, Brian, the one important thing, when you go through the U.S. contributions to the IHR on this, and we don't need to show more slides if you don't want to, I can just uh, verbalize it. Uh, there's different references, just for, to name an example, um, uh, little phrases like taking into account the views of the state party concerned, phrases like that, are being edited out of the text of the health regulations. So various references to state to state parties having input or having the ability to delay a meeting, all those kind of things are being edited out. Uh, it's very surgical. And so while, while there is lip service to national autonomy and the, you know, the autonomy of counties and states and subnational components within governments like that of the US, there's lip service to that, but again, there's a lot of this surgical removal of places where individual nation states can have uh, more input or throw their weight around a little more. That a lot of that is being cut back and eliminated, uh, cut back and eliminated as we speak. 
I think that's the most important takeaway for at least for today, uh, given some of the time constraints. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. And, and I know one of the things that you were going to mention is that if uh, viewers, listeners go to the UK column website, you can have a look for the James Roguski uh, interview um, with uh, Debbie. Um, and this is on the theme and there's a lot of important information in this. But what we are warning about is not only the, the whole so-called health control aspect, but how this is taking power away from the nation state. And I'll just throw a little rock into the pond because of course on the 6th of May, we've got the coronation of the king and uh, people are already starting to point out that uh, Charles has been spending a lot of time working with these sorts of agencies, although his priority is supposed to be looking after the sovereign state of the United Kingdom. So uh, we'll see how that develops. But uh, Mark, thank you very much for that. Uh, back in a couple of minutes for some extra. Okay. And uh, a big thank you to everybody who's uh, watching. And thank you very much for people who've made themselves known to us, UK Column, wherever we've been in the country. It's uh, very apparent that we clearly are getting more and more viewers. So thank you for that. We'll be back shortly. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.